and some technical difficulties. I think it's figured out. All right, let's go. Manufacturing dissent since 1996, this is hell, as the government and the media do their best to try and convince us of their fantasy that we're all in this together. Reality keeps proving otherwise. It's not only that we are not all in this together when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's not only that we are not all in this together when it comes to how our lives are policed. We are also not all in this together when it comes to the most basic aspects of life, like the degree to which we lead a healthy life and for how long. All of those inequalities which keep us from ever being in anything together are driven by racism, which has been institutionalized here in the United States. As long as that pervasive racism persists, we will never be in anything together. We can't be. Racism, as African Americans acutely know, is bad for your health. Whether it's being a victim of poverty or police violence or poisoned by environmental hazards to your health, concerns being or your health concerns being dismissed or ignored by medical professionals, or a complete lack of access to health care altogether, racism can be deadly. And here in the United States, that deadly racism against African Americans is so baked into the system, it's difficult to determine who or what is responsible or should be held to account. In a few minutes, we'll discuss the deadly outcome of racism in the United States when we will be speaking with Ann Pollock, author of Sickening, Anti-Black Racism and Health Disparities in the United States. Anne is professor of global health and social medicine at King's College in London. Anne's earlier books include Medicating Race, Heart Disease and Durable Preoccupations with Difference, and Synthesizing Hope, Matter, Knowledge, and Place in South African Drug Discovery. Anne serves as the lead editorial team on the lead editorial team of Catalyst, Feminism, Theory, Technoscience, which you can find at catalystjournal.org, and is also an associate editor at BioSocieties, a quarterly peer-reviewed scientific journal covering the scholarly exploration of the crucial social, ethical, and policy implications of developments in the life sciences and biomedicine. You can find out more about Anne at annpollock.com. That's P-O-L-L-O-C-K. And with Hurricane Ida making landfall in New Orleans, we need to remember that when it came to Hurricane Katrina 20 years or 15 years ago, the real devastation occurred in the months that followed the actual storm when African Americans had limited access to health care, if any at all. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Monday, so producing is Jess Lipka. Jess, how have you been? How was your weekend? Anything fascinating happen in your world? Um, I'm good. I went camping this weekend, which was fun. Where'd you go? Um, just southern Wisconsin. Oh, no kidding. What part? Do you go to Kettle Moraine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I still haven't gone there. Is it worth going? I mean, it was fun for a weekend. It's nothing spectacular. 
<laughs> Are there good places to hike? Yeah, I mean, there's like a lot. There's a long like like it's pretty hilly, and there there's a long trail. It's it's nice. There's swimming. I mean, it was fun for for a few days. <laughs> it sounds like you wouldn't want to be there much longer. Well, I lived in Washington. It's not the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're saying. My weekend, uh, like yours, Jess, was hot and humid, and it has been that way here in Chicago since I returned from vacation, and it sucks. Now I've got cabin fever again, and I know cabin fever is usually associated with it being cold outside, not hot, but I cannot leave my place because it's too freaking hot outside. First, the pandemic caused cabin fever because we were in quarantine. Then winter sets in, and both the virus and Chicago's freezing cold kept us all inside. Now it's summer, and my home is starting to feel frighteningly like a biodome where I can be safe from the virus and heat. And stepping outside is deadly. Meanwhile, in breaking news, I broke my pinky toe for, I think, the fourth or maybe fifth time. For those of you who have not broken your pinky toe, when you do, it hurts like hell, and there's nothing you can really do about it other than taping it to the toe next to it, using your other toe as a kind of splint. And now you know. But more importantly than it being far too hot out and me breaking my freaking toe, Jess, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you starting to have second thoughts about? What are you starting to have second thoughts about? <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. I want to thank uh, this week, I'd like to thank Magnificent Me and Brett B for their tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell. Thanks, Magnificent and Brett. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com, but you must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Yes, I did say by the end of Wednesday's show because with our new schedule, Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth happens now on Wednesdays, every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Chicago time. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Anne on racial inequality and health care. Again, the question from hell is, what are you starting to have second thoughts about? What are you starting to have second thoughts about? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Chia Seeds, the website of the absolutely awful and thoroughly unreadable parade magazine ran an article with the headline rough morning here are the best or the 15 best foods to eat when you're hungover this means that with our most sincere apologies we will likely be citing the waste of paper that is parade magazine for the next several weeks several weeks i really want to apologize for this because parade is just a disaster yeah we got 15 of them yeah the, the story source is registered dietitian nutritionist ginger holton author of anti-inflammatory diet meal prep and How to Eat to Beat Disease Cookbook, an owner of something called Champagne Nutrition, which sounds so Parade Magazine. <laughs> it is so Parade Magazine. Um, uh, Hutton is, is quoted as, as saying, Some hangover theories conclude that inflammation is at the root of the uncomfortable effects of a hangover and that foods that help inhibit compounds called prostaglandins that uh, cause inflammation could help. One classic food that helps lower inflammation and, de and decrease those prostaglandins from being produced are omega-3 fatty acids and chia seeds are rich in that type of healthy fat. Enjoy them in a soothing smoothie or chia seeds pudding to feel better. 
that makes this week's Hangover Cure Chia Seeds. And our apologies again for mentioning Parade Magazine on our show for the very first time. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible horrible business model. This is Helen. If you'd like to support our horrible business model that puts people before profits, subscribe to our bonus weekly Friday podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, which streams live at 10 a.m. Fridays and his podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Shortly after on this past Friday's podcast, I lamented how my family's annual summer vacation spot, a lakefront resort with crumbling, decrepit cabins has been sadly, unfortunately modernized. What could be called its character has been stripped from it, replaced with roofs that do not leak floors that no longer sweat, and the charmingly hazardous exposed cloth wiring that used to run throughout the cabin has been upgraded to the kind of electric that does not cause fires. New owners have dragged the place into the 21st century, and I explained on Patreon this week or last week why that modernization sucks. Following my monologue with the fall of the thoroughly corrupt U.S. puppet government in Afghanistan, we thought it would be a good time to share an interview from early in the Afghan war, so we played our December 1st, 2001 conversation with Tamina Faryal of the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, which has been promoting women's rights and secular democracy in Afghanistan since long before Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or the Mujahideen, dating all the way back to 1977, and we're trying to get a representative Rawa uh, back on the show on Wednesday to discuss what's happening right now in Afghanistan. Find out more about Tamina's organization at rawa.org. That's R-A-W-A dot org. If you go there now, you will see Rawa's take on Afghanistan falling to the Taliban, which is summed up like this. It is a joke to say values like women's rights, democracy, nation building were part of the U.S. NATO aims in Afghanistan. In our conversation with Tamina back in 2001, she explicitly states that the Northern Alliance is not the heroic anti-Taliban resistance the U.S. was making it out to be in 2001, and the U.S. again is trying to make them into the good guys in 2021. Tamina wondered back then, and Rawa is still wondering today, why doesn't the U.S. engage with the real people fighting for actual democracy in Afghanistan and have been doing it since 1977 like the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan? But you can only hear how horrible modernization can be, how difficult it is today to get away from it all, and the perspective of Afghan women at the beginning of the Afghan war by subscribing to our weekly bonus This Is Hell Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. The last time we were here on air, we asked you if... We should have our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show. This is art featuring food, music, and an art opening opening as scheduled on Saturday, September 18th at the bar downstairs from these studios, Carrie's Lounge, which is located at 2251 West Devon Avenue here in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. We've been holding these parties since our 20th anniversary back in 2016, but unfortunately we had to cancel our party last year in 2020 due to the pandemic. We originally scheduled this year's party for July 24th. However, in June, we rescheduled the party for September, hoping that would make the party more likely to happen as experts were predicting a summer surge of the virus. Back in June, Rob Wallace, who the most recent cover of The Nation describes as the guy who got it right about the pandemic, he told us the only way we should have had the party would be completely outdoors, masked and socially distanced. That's the only way we should hold the party. As all that would be logistically impossible, we put off the party until September. Now, with yet another surge, the Delta variant, the looming Lambda variant, 
and city as well as statewide indoor mask mandates. We are asking if we should still go ahead with the party or should we wait until July 23rd, 2022. So all week long, we will be sharing your opinions on whether to throw the party or not. Please send your thoughts to us via email, tweet them to us, or message us via Facebook. So we did get an email from Bob and uh, in Woodstock, and Bob, uh, who always joins us at the anniversary party, he sent us his thoughts on whether we should go ahead with the party or not. Bob writes, dear friends, don't have the party. It will go against what you preached about when the pandemic first started. Thanks, Bob. And you are correct. From the very beginning, we have been preaching, as Bob calls it, safety, caution, and more than anything else, that this pandemic was going to last far longer and be far more deadly than the smiling media wanted you to believe. While the media and the government were projecting U.S. death deaths totaling 70,000, we had epidemiologists, as I just mentioned, Rob Wallace, in, on the show in mid-March of last year, insisting the number would be at least a half million, if not more. And Rob was right. How right? Rob is on the cover of the most recent issue of The Nation, as I was saying, and featured in a story headlined, The Unemployed Epidemiologist Who Predicted the Pandemic. For years, Rob Wallace warned the, that industrial agriculture could cause deadly outbreaks at a global scale and made him an exile in his field. So, Bob, I got to admit it, it would seem a bit contradictory to have the party considering how we have covered the pandemic, and that's definitely something we've been considering. Coming up, racism kills black Americans. We will also have this week in rotten history some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you starting to have second thoughts about? You can tell what we're having second thoughts about. What, what are you starting to have second thoughts about. We'll tell you who is, we'll also tell you who's going to be on the show for the rest of the week, and we'll share more of your opinions on whether we should have the anniversary party or not. Email your opinion or tweet them at us or send them to us via Facebook, and we'll share your thoughts on air. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell institutionalized racism in the United States, especially racism against African Americans, is deadly. The inequality in healthcare caused by racism is tragic, leading to lives that can easily be saved being unnecessarily lost. Here to explain the tragedy of racial inequality in healthcare, Ann Pollock is author of Sickening, Anti-Black Racism and Health Disparities in the United States. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ann. Thank you so much for having me. You can find out more about Anne by going to her website, annepollock.com. That's A-N-N-E-P-O-L-L-O-C-K.com. You begin by writing in spring 2020 when so many people all over the world first became transfixed by the dangers of the novel coronavirus that causes COVID-19. There was a strong narrative that we were all in this together as we were implored to flatten the curve. And yet, with each passing week, the racially and ethnically unequal pattern of who was most likely to be sickened and killed by COVID-19 became increasingly visible. If the looming curve looked mathematical and indiscriminate, that obscured the very different lived experiences that structure epidemiological risk. risk. Indiscriminate. Another phrase that was being repeated alongside we are all in this together is this virus does not discriminate. To what degree does epidemiological risk discriminate? Are there discriminating factors in the incidence, distribution, 
impossible control of diseases. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there is this nice kind of sheen to the idea that medical problems um, that are caused by viruses or bacteria shouldn't discriminate, right? So they shouldn't have the same kind of human categories that might say that this life is more valuable than that life or this body is more vulnerable than another. And yet we know um, in global health and social medicine that this is not precisely true, right? So even though it is the case that COVID is caused by a virus, many things are caused by bacteria or by other things, um, it's not the case that they just kind of happen at random. So we know that, um, you know, with COVID, for example, um, exposure through things like essential work uh, was really important right from the beginning. We know that the underlying conditions that make people differentially vulnerable to the virus are also products of pre-existing inequalities. So when we would hear things like, okay, diabetes is a risk factor um, or hypertension is a risk factor, that kind of tended to take for granted that there were not already inequalities baked into categories like that. And then um, I think that this was particularly palpable here in the United Kingdom where I live, that um, the differential conditions of housing, so crowded housing conditions make stay-at-home orders very different than, um, you know, kind of a spacious uh, kind of accommodations. And so where uh, the imperative to stay at home um, keeps many people safe, it doesn't keep everyone safe. And, um, you know, so this was another additional kind of element uh, to the ways in which the COVID crisis absolutely discriminated against particular groups of people. And in the book, I talk mostly about anti-Black racism in the United States. Of course, some of the same things could be um, extended and, and analysis could be made of other groups as well. But I think that the very particular history of the United States and the fundamental nature of anti-Black racism in structuring both the history and the ongoing society kind of makes it worth specific focus. And that's uh, what I did in this book. When you were just answering that question, I came, I have like 56 questions written down for you. And uh, I just came up with another question because I didn't really think about it before. Why the desire to be in this together and the lack of institutional togetherness, if you will? What explains that disconnect from our desire to be in this together and a lack of a system that causes togetherness? It's such an important question. I mean, the book, so the book has kind of two beginnings. One is the introduction, which I was writing in 2020 in the summer. And it was kind of July 4th. And I was thinking about this, this moment of the summer of 2020 and the extent to which we weren't in it together. But the substantive chapters of the book start at another similar moment, which was September 11th, 2001 and specifically look at the postal workers who died in the anthrax attacks. And this was another moment where I think that whenever there's this kind of a threat that seems novel, right? So terrorism on a scale and kind of a spectacular character that had not been seen before in the United States, even if it had been elsewhere. And then this novel coronavirus, right? So it feels new. So therefore it should be um, something that is more, um, that should follow a different structure, a different striation than something old. And yet um, what we saw with September 11th as well 
And certainly, you know, with the aftermath that I talk about, a lot, uh, you know, surprisingly, largely forgotten, I think, in the public imagination, the loss of these postal workers um, who had endeavored to get care, had endeavored to get answers from the government and had been thwarted in doing so. Um, but I think that there's this way that um, the narrative of we're all in this together helps to obscure the kind of lived conditions of those who are never safe. So not before September 11th, right? So the United States was not this bastion of security before September 11th, 2001. And it wasn't in 2020 either. And so I think that there's a desire for, for the novel to somehow upend or transform that rather than reinforce existing inequalities, which is of course what we have seen. Um, you know, after September 11th, there, it, there, it felt to some people like there might be a moment um, where there might be an interest in building a public health infrastructure, um, that there might be a moment of a kind of um, infrastructural investment. That's not the way that it happened. And there are multiple cases like that in the book that I talk about. So Katrina being another one that you mentioned because of what's going on today. Um, so Hurricane Katrina was another one of these moments where it was like, there was this uh, discussion of, okay, it's a wake up call to recognize that there is poverty in America, that there are people who are being left behind, that there are people who are treated like refugees rather than like full citizens. Um, and we could, of course, problematize that rhetoric too. Um, and yet the wake up call still needs to be happening. Um, in part, I mean, because these things are ongoing. On, on those postal workers, uh, they died on what could be considered the front lines of the war on terror and that there were postal workers right after 9-11. During the pandemic, as you were pointing out earlier about essential workers, uh, we have seen frontline workers again, now essential workers, made vulnerable to the coronavirus. Is this a repeated history of racialized vulnerability during a crisis? And in light of worsening climate change, can we expect the same kind of racialized vulnerability to crisis to become more acute? Yes, I think so. I mean, I do think that it is important to look at the specificities of each of the cases as well and the ways that they don't operate in precisely the same way. So um, the postal workers being particularly vulnerable, and we have seen that with delivery uh, workers um, in this pandemic as well. Um, but I, I do think that there is something specific that emerges in each um, case too. So the kind of specificity of Washington DC as this place and this site, which has a very particular postal infrastructure as well, um, you know, is also worthwhile. So one of the things that I um, try to do in the book is to both um, kind of sit with the stories a little bit longer than what I think we often do when kind of doom scrolling and kind of going through the litany of how things are all horrible, uh, which they are, um, but also trying to think about, okay, what are the specific mechanisms in this instance? Um, and I think that for, in the postal workers case and the anthrax attacks of 2001, um, these, uh, some of the things were very much the same of like, okay, we have to keep the essential infrastructure going. So we're gonna disregard um, those who are keeping that operating. But then there are also very specific things around the way that healthcare operates in HMOs and the ways that the um, kind of assumptions about 
who needs to be believed when they're talking about their concerns, um, who needs emergency access to medicines in a context when there's concern about antibiotic resistance and you know, who um, is considered to be uh, someone who investment is warranted in. So that's capital work, Capitol Hill workers and, and many other people uh, were uh, popping Cipro in that period. Um, and so, you know, that this, I think, did op has operated a little bit differently now. Um, and I think that uh, there are continuities and discontinuities, I suppose, is, is what I would say about the, about the pandemic and the kind of post-September 11th uh, moment. You were just mentioning who needs to be believed when it comes to medical concerns. And you examined the case of the two black postal workers, Thomas Morris and Joseph Kersine, who died of inhalation anthrax on October 21st, 2001. These postal workers' deaths took place in a defining moment in U.S. history, you write, making the case a fitting one with which to open this book focused on racism and health in the 21st century. And you cite the transcript of a telephone call to 911 that one of the postal workers made hours before he died recounting his unsuccessful pursuit of treatment for what he had rightly suspected was anthrax. Although the postal workers' deaths were extraordinary, their experiences provide a valuable focal point for thinking about political and medical systems that routinely fail to provide adequate care to African Americans. But how can we think about that valuable focal point if we did not know it about it? Because you know, I'm ashamed to say I was unaware that the African-American uh, postal workers who contracted anthrax had difficulty getting health care. This is an obvious case of racial inequality in healthcare. So to what extent is this story known or does the news media ignore the effects and outcome of inequality? Well, I think that this, for me, this was an audio precursor to the kind of viral videos that have become so... Um, you know, such kind of iconic um, figurations of the Black Lives Matter era. Uh, I mean, so certainly for me, when I heard this in 2001, which was when I was just starting my PhD at MIT in Boston, um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I, um, I was really struck listening to this radio program and hearing the 911 call in which the postal worker, uh, one of the two postal workers was talking, telling the operator that his breathing was labored, that he didn't know if he had been, but he suspected that he might have been exposed to anthrax. And then really working through, um, you know, kind of describing what had happened, because then the operator says, well, you know, have you gone to the doctor? What did they say? Oh, did the postal service say, you know, what did they say? And he really, you know, articulates um, the barriers that he faced. And I think that um, this was really unusual in that time. Um, and I think that it was, you know, so overshadowed, I think, by the events of September 11th, that I don't think that it kind of resonated in the way that, that later um, viral videos would resonate. Uh, but I think that that actually maybe is a change that has happened where, I mean, not every incident becomes one of those focal points, but I think that now um, there is a much greater recognition of the ways in which these particular incidents are at once extraordinary. You know, so it's unusual for, for example, police violence to be captured on camera. Um, but these are illustrations of far broader phenomena that should be held to account. And so 
that's what I'm, I, so here I'm trying to, in a way, broaden that scope and provide a little bit of a, a prehistory. So even though these are all 21st century cases, and I, I made that decision very um, purposefully, uh, so I do talk about earlier cases. So the Tuskegee syphilis study comes up a lot as a, a locus of why it is that African-Americans distrust the U.S. government and also U.S. healthcare. And that is important as a touchstone, but it's also important to recognize that distrust is constantly cultivated in the present. And so we saw that um, you know, with the postal workers case. Um, and I think that we see that again and again, right? So um, with ongoing health disparities and other forms of inequity and violence, that it's not just the legacy of a horrific history that is cultivating distrust, but that the institutions are not trustworthy. And so I think that we need to really put a lot more analytical attention there in demanding um, that the institutions like healthcare that are meant to keep us safe and well live up to that promise. Do you think there's a general unwillingness to recognize inequality or is inequality just so invisible to us, it's difficult to recognize? I guess probably both are true. I think most people who are reading this book are probably already aware that there are problems and are trying to get some analytical purchase on them. I mean, I think that, you know, there's, um, there is a big debate happening and not everyone is on board. Um, I mean, I think that Kamara Jones, uh, who uh, folks may be familiar with, a very important epidemiologist and anti-racist activist, she, uh, and physician, um, she talks about, you know, the really important elements of first recognizing that racism even exists, second, recognizing that it's a system, um, and then, uh, you know, and then kind of going from there uh, to looking at how we can act um, against it. And I think that that is really important. I do think that most of the readers of this book are going to be people who who already recognize that it exists and really want to understand how um, how these problems in of broader social and structural inequality become embodied, um, and really think about okay, what are the levers um, for potential change? So, um, you were mentioning social media earlier, and you were just talking about the more systemic issue involved with racism. What is the impact of social media on our ability to see the bigger picture, the more systemic issues, instead focusing on the next piece of breaking news? Why does social media lead to us losing focus on the more systemic issues? Yeah, I think that there's a real uh, challenge there because on the one hand, social media can give us the information, right? So we can see the viral videos. We can learn much more than we could before about the statistics. Um, we could become exposed to so much more. And yet often there is this way that the news cycle just kind of churns. And so there's, an, there's the, the kind of structure of it often operates to say, okay, that was yesterday's news. And so now moving on to today's news, and um, even if there's not necessarily enough analysis to even show the ways in which it's different, um, there's an emphasis on the do. And so I think that, you know, so even if the postal workers case maybe in the book is not as widely known, certainly Hurricane Katrina is widely known. I mean, many of the, the cases that I talk about are widely known. And part of what I'm suggesting is that we should sit a little bit longer with the stories and not kind of follow the news cycle rush 
and really sit with them longer in order to see how they're connected, not just in a gestural way, not just in a, okay, everything is, um, everything is structural, which it is, uh, but to say, okay, well, what are the specific structures at play here? Um, and then, you know, really thinking through, okay, what would it look like in order to change that from wherever it is that we find ourselves sitting? You write that living in a structurally unequal society impacts the health and citizenship of racialized populations, especially African-Americans. Racial disparities in medicine and health do not have a single cause, but are the result of wide-ranging and interconnected elements of living in a racist society. When healthcare is discussed by politicians and those in the news media, the financial cost, the bottom line, and how expensive private healthcare is in the United States, that's what's discussed. How expensive is it in healthcare costs to maintain a racist society? What impact does racism have on healthcare costs and everyone's bottom line? Because we're always told that universal healthcare is cost prohibitive. What is the cost of having a racist society? Yeah, I mean, it's tremendous, right? So, I mean, part of it you can think about of the kind of what we talk about as qualities, right? So the quality adjusted life years and, um, you know, there's very actuarial and epidemiological ways that you could understand what is lost. But I think that um, there really is a more fundamental way in which the inhibition of the flourishing of everyone really does kind of sap the whole society, right? This is a, another uh, kind of thing that Kamara Jones also emphasizes too, is that, um, that racism not only impacts those who are members of racialized groups and who are denied care and denied access to things that would foster flourishing and differentially exposed to things that cause harm. Um, that and that itself, I think, matters a great deal. I mean, I think we should, so first of all, recognize that the harms to the victims of racism are real and profound. I also think that there's a way in which um, the, the sapping the, um, the vitality of the society is also important. I mean, think about the lost potential that we have. Think about the, the, um, those kind of lives that could be lived fully um, that could bring joy to communities, that could um, bring uh, intellectual benefits, could, could bring anything else that we might want, right? So not to kind of embrace a really neoliberal model of what people are for, um, but that that's also lost. Um, so there's, there's an economic cost, um, but there's also a profound social one in that, you know, people who are not allowed to flourish are not able to contribute um, to the broader social projects that we might be invested in. We are speaking with Ann Pollock. She is author of Sickening, Anti-Black Racism and Health Disparities in the United States. Find out more about Ann at annpollock.com. You write the unequal exposure to risk and the unjust denial of care are also profoundly routine. They are emblematic of the slow violence that often goes unnoticed, but is fundamental to how bodily well-being becomes unequal. Does that slow violence go even unnoticed by those who are its victims? Who does not notice the slow violence of inequality? 
Yeah, I mean, I think slow violence often becomes visible when it does become an event, um, which is relatively rare. So, I mean, slow violence is an idea that really is developed in terms of environmental injustices most broadly. And so the environmental case, the most prominent environmental case that I talk about in the book is the Flint water crisis. And here, we it was an unusual situation in which um, the kind of routine disinvestment that has been going on for generations in Flint, Michigan, um, became an extraordinary event that was recognized through, you know, these very particular decisions that were made at moments in time. And so I think that it's not that people didn't know that the slow violence was happening of kind of the differential disinvestment in communities in Michigan. And Michigan happens to be where I'm from as well. So I'm very, you know, this one's um, kind of really resonates with me that we, that we're aware of that. And yet it's hard to kind of get purchase on it sometimes. And so you should really put your finger on it. And I think that with the Flint water crisis and the specific element that I focused on there is the way that as soon as the water source was changed in Flint, the General Motors plant, um, the folks there noticed that the water was corrosive because the engines were being damaged at the plant. And so the GM folks were able to go to the governor, get dip dispensation to go back to the old water source before the water damage, the damage that the water caused was permanent. Now people living in Flint also noticed the problem right away. It's not that they were, you know, naive uh, to the, I mean, the water smelled bad, it tasted bad, it looked bad. Um, people knew that there were problems right away. And yet they took years to get um, the attention that it needed until the infrastructure itself was damaged. And that created, of course, tons more cost um, and a huge impact on, you know, a generation. And so, so I think that the, what I try to do in the book is to take those instances of slow violence and, you know, that is absolutely the case with disinvestment in post-industrial communities in Michigan and places like it, um, and look for those moments where you can see, okay, it's not inevitable, right? General Motors can stand up for its machines. Someone can get protection. The emergency financial manager of Flint, um, so an unelected official who is overseeing the finances of Flint, can prioritize certain things, and the people are just not historically um, what that priority is. And I think that helps to articulate the way that it is a political question. So it's a political question who matters um, at the table, and so do bondholders matter more than citizens? Um, than residents, uh, you know, I think that that is an open political question. And that's what I think we need to, to kind of push a little bit further and say, okay, so we're, you know, we are actually going to demand that, that there is a, a, a more alignment um, between the corporate persons who are catered to in this uh, kind of regulatory and um, financially often austere environments austerity is selective, not everyone suffers the same. And so really like making an argument that, you know, this is a Black Lives Matter argument to say that, um, that the bodies of people are as important at least as the bodies of an engine plant. 
I got to ask you, what town are you from in northern Michigan? You mentioned in your book. I'm from Traverse City, yeah. Oh, no kidding. Okay, because I'm, De- yeah. I'm from Detroit. So, and I was just, yeah. my sister lives up by uh, Kalkaska right now. So, right up by you. Uh, you, oh. that differential uh, protection of the non human material integrity of GM's machines over the non human material integrity of the water pipes and the human bodily integrity of the people of Flint provides a window into racialized biopolitics. The protection of finance and machines over infrastructure and people illustrates the devaluation of groups of humans considered to be surplus in the service of the interests of capital. Is the purpose of racialized inequality to put profits over the lives of people considered to be disposable? And if so, how dependent is capitalism as it stands today on the capital generated from the racialized inequality that imposes disposability upon black lives? How much do we depend Upon how much does capitalism depend upon the disposability of black lives? I mean, it is so fundamental. I think this um, this moment of we, you know, so some you might call it late capitalism or um, post-industrial capitalism. There is a tremendous problem with the way that uh, there's many bodies are considered to be superfluous. Um, to the system. And so I think that this is where we need to really like contest that mode of capitalism um, that decides that entire populations can be disposable. And I think it's worth, um, you know, it is also worth recognizing when I mean, it's not only Black people who are hurt by this. I mean, it's many people as well, right? So, um, you know, that the disposability um, that this system imposes on racialized minorities um, actually like undermines the ability to build a public health system in the United States entire. So Jonathan Metzl has written about this um, with the, you know, he calls it dying of whiteness, um, that this commitment to that many uh, poor whites have to um, not having a public health care system, not having public financing, not having uh, kind of the basics of life uh, be anything but tremendously precarious actually damages health. And so I think that, um, you know, really there's a there's a lot of value in really thinking about, OK, what is this mode of capitalism that has been embraced? Who is it serving? Why is it serving them? How important is racism in understanding how that has been sustained in the United States? Um, And then the ways also that an anti-racist kind of praxis benefits the health of everyone. So, um, you know, it's not about, I think one of the challenges is that um, even though capitalism promises ever-growing growth, um, it also encourages a zero-sum game where it's like, okay, well, if you got more healthcare, then I would get less. So first of all, we would all be better off with um, solving problems upstream. So rather than only with healthcare, just access to things that will foster good health. Um, but then also that, you know, that, that it's not actually a zero sum thing, right? That we can all, um, we all benefit from a human centric kind of health and an anti-racist human centric health helps to make sure that the kind of more just system that we build doesn't just perpetuate the inequalities from the current system. So it has to be intersectionally feminist, um, this kind of future that we want to build, or else it will just kind of, you know, recapitulate the same injustices that we have in the current system. 
And you write that Flint also demonstrates the extent to which ideas of emergency, citizenship, and bodily integrity are politically contingent. This small event of GM getting clean water before the people of Flint did within the broader Flint water crisis illustrates a fundamental element of racial disparities in health in the United States, differential protection of non-human financial capital and racialized human life. Do racial disparities prioritize capital over black lives or under neoliberalism and austerity, is capital prioritized over all lives? I mean, I guess both, I would say. I would say both. I mean, I think that, um, right, so the on one level, like the bondholders kind of don't care, don't have to care, um, you know, that this, uh, that there's, there are ways in which the, the mechanisms of global financial capital movements um, don't, necessarily care who they harm, except that those who have political capital can contest it. And so we see this again and again where, um, you know, so this is one of those, like, we're all in this together kind of moments, right? Where it's like, yeah, so all other things being equal, um, the kind of vagaries of capital would uh, harm all humans, um, except for maybe the 1%. Um, but then uh, as it actually plays out, we see that that people contest that. I mean, lots of people uh, contest that treatment and um, they have differential political clout in order to make that contestation really sustainable. And so that's that kind of a reconfiguring um, of political power that will help to challenge the ways that I mean, you know, corporations are not inhuman. Um, I mean, they're like, they're not immoral, they're amoral, right? Like morality is not what they're about. And so, um, so we need to instead um, kind of create a, a countervailing element there um, in order to insist that, um, you know, it's not just the people with political clout today, um, but that, uh, that there really has to be a and I talk about it um, in the book, a little bit of influence from liberation theology and a preferential option for the poor um, that will make sure that these kind of larger phenomena have a counterweight, um, a check on them um, as part of the part of the idea there. If we are not all in this together and, and the virus does discriminate when it comes to epidemiological risk, how is public health and its response to a p- pandemic affected by being misled into believing that we are in this together and the virus does not discriminate. So I want to make sure people understand that we're not just arguing over the semantics of something. These semantics, the rhetoric that's used, has an impact on the way we respond to crisis. So how is public health and its response to a pandemic affected by believing that we are in this together when we're not? I think one of the key ways is just with um the failure to recognize the impact of stay-at-home orders. So I remember very early on in the pandemic hearing about how many people in Detroit had their water turned off um, at the start, uh, you know, had had it turned off recently um, for non-payment or for whatever it might have been. And so the public health message that's going out there is, okay, wash your hands and, you know, um, stay at home but we had thousands of people who couldn't, you know, who had to use bottled water in order to wash hands at home, who had to use, um, you know, kind of 
buckets drawn from other people's houses in order to flush toilets, right? So we are, you know, and where many people, you know, where their jobs were shut down, so they didn't have access to toilets where they were working. So there's these really like fundamental failures of public health infrastructure that people just imagine don't exist, right? So, oh, anyone can just stay home and work from home, you know, not recognizing that not all jobs can be done from home and not all recognizing that not all homes are safe. Um, and so I think that there's just, uh, you know, it's a really, um, it's a it's a profound kind of invisibility, I think, um, to uh, the ways in which infrastructure makes the lives that we live at home um, quite quite unequal. Oh. You write that the crisis of American identity and unity that is the racially disparate impact of Hurricane Katrina, in which the fissures in the body politic have been more widely recognized than they were in the wake of 9-11. The largely poor and black population of New Orleans have been made acutely vulnerable by the governmental expectation that people would pursue safety on their own. The orders to evacuate the city in advance of the storm were impossible to follow for many who did not have access to either private cars or any form of transportation in a way that is evocative of the impossibility of following the COVID-era orders to shelter in place for those who must leave home to support their household's basic needs. Our expectations, like being able to evacuate when a hurricane hits or shelter in place and survive a pandemic, I mean, those all seem like they're grounded in privilege. When crises happen, does the government warn white people what to do more than they do African-Americans? Our general public war warnings not for the poor are crisis responses based on how to save privileged white people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's, this is again why this uh, question about, um, you know, often there's a kind of lamentation in public health about, oh, you know, why doesn't everyone trust the government and trust the guidance? But the guidance is unrealistic often for many people. And I think, you know, it's even more stark in another context where I work, which is South Africa. Um, but even in the United States, you would see, and even here in the UK where I live, you would see these just kind of um, these ways that the assumptions that are made about what people can do and should do and kind of seeing it as a moral failing of people when they're not able um, to follow the guidance, um, you know, is a real is a is a real way in which the government cultivates mistrust, right? Because it really shows an ignorance to uh, the lived conditions that people are navigating. So if you say in Hurricane Katrina, like, oh, okay, everyone get in your car and drive, well, you know, you're ignoring the fact that men, not everyone has a private car. So that assumption that everything can be solved at an individual level, um, kind of household level, is you know, a real erasure, I think, of a lot of people who are also um, living in the United States. And then the lack of uh, repairs to infrastructure. I was just reading a story the other day about how there is no Amtrak service uh, along the Gulf Coast line where Hurricane Ida just hit because it hasn't been repaired since... Katrina. I mean, they're not even fixing the infrastructure at all. And right, and they were just announcing the other day that um, when Hurricane Ida makes landfall, people are going to be without power for months 
They were saying that beforehand yeah. as if there is not, do not expect a reaction. Do not expect the government to respond. You write, as in the current crisis, long-standing structurally induced heightened burdens of chronic diseases such as cardiovascular diseases and diabetes, as you were mentioning earlier, made African-Americans more vulnerable still to acute illness. Now as then, the fragmented and inadequate U.S. healthcare system compounds the harms of baseline exclusions. If the U.S. healthcare system has proven to be so inadequate in times of crisis when it comes to Katrina and the pandemic, how inadequate and thus unsustainable is the unequal U.S. healthcare system when it comes to the additional crisis of climate change? Does it come down to U.S. privatized healthcare surviving or us surviving? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is this gets to what you were talking about before with this idea about like what is too expensive um, and what is like inevitable. I mean, I think that there has been so much money spent on biomedical preparedness in these like weird doomsday scenarios around bioterrorism. And, you know, that's the kind of direction um, that was followed after 9-11. And you could imagine a not more costly response, which would be about just strengthening the infrastructure. So kind of making sure that everyone has um, kind of this uh, access to safe water, um, access to safe food, you know, the um, really kind of baseline elements of access to a healthcare infrastructure. And if we understood that to be what preparedness meant, I think that that, you know, that if we said, okay, this is what it means to be prepared for a disaster is making sure that households are not held in the kind of precarity that is assumed to be something that people can endure. Um, And, you know, that 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 itself, I think, should be part of what we're thinking about as we think about preparedness for climate change. So it's not about some kind of high tech solution with manipulating clouds or, you know, building these like revolutionary new solar cells. But it's really about, um, you know, just a much more kind of a lower tech, um, more authentically human investment in the making sure that everybody has got uh, a basis from which to flourish. You also write that the crises of COVID-19 and of police brutality can call our attention to the factors that contribute to health inequality, such as systems of health care and of policing in a context of segregated neighborhoods and unequal urban infrastructures. They also point toward the depth of the societal transformation that would be required for black lives to be treated as if they truly matter. How are health care and policing related? What is the link between racialized police brutality and COVID-19? Well, so there's more than one. I mean, I think that on one level, you can see acute harms. So we see that, you know, so with um, police killings, obviously that is an acute harm, but there's also chronic ones. So I talk about the Dejeria Becton case, which was the, the McKinney pool party incident, which people may remember that one. It was very much a viral video of a girl in a bikini being pinned down by police officers in suburban Dallas. And I think that, you know, what is going on here is so much more than any physical harm that happens in that particular encounter, but also needs to be understood in terms of the way that like navigating an an urban environment in which that kind of threat is pervasive 
Like, so that is stressful and stress uh, leads to a kind of series of hormonal uh, phenomena which do damage to the body, right? So we know, so we talked a bit about hypertension before, right? So the relationships between hypertension and stress are important. And so really thinking about, okay, what is the impact of living in an environment in which there's this kind of threat of police violence um, and vigilante violence as well, I think is an important piece of this too, um, that, so that that itself impacts health. And I also think, you know, the, the site of the pool is an important one to think through in terms of the impacts of segregation too. So, you know, the reason that we even have these pools in the Craig Ranch neighborhood um, in McKinney, Texas, that are owned by the Homeowners Association is because of disinvestment in pools in public pools, right? So pools that would serve the whole city. And so, you know, and it may seem like a trivial thing. I mean, we now think of pools as just kind of a leisure spot, a place to cool down in places where you're as lucky as you are to have some warm weather. Uh, we've had a chilly summer here in London. But, you know, the, um, that the pool is also a place to have, um, you know, kind of some uh, physical activity and leisure and fun. And, you know, that, that is, you know, letting off steam and having a de-stress is also important. Um, and so, you know, that the fact that those are privatized and that you have to be a member of the homeowner association with these kinds of restrictions, like that itself is part of the way that the kind of urban infrastructure is a way in which racism shapes health. So the kind of construction of private um, homeowner association oriented facilities and then the, and the disinvestment in public ones that everyone can use, um, you know, go hand in hand with the heavily militarized policed responses to any perceived infringements of those. And I want to get back to Katrina before I let you go because of what's happening with Hurricane Ida. You write three key ways in which the response to Katrina exacerbated the pre-existing vulnerability of the population, especially with regard to health, are at emergency shelters, in drug donation programs, and in ongoing care. Each of these disrupted pharmaceutical flows provides an opportunity to see ways that those most acutely impacted by Hurricane Katrina were framed as outside of the mainstream American public in intertwining ways. Disrupted pharmaceutical flows at emergency shelters exemplify the way in which Katrina victims were impacted by discourses and practices associated with criminality. Disrupted pharmaceutical flows and drug donation programs do the same with regard to subjects of global health charity. Disrupted pharmaceutical flows in ongoing care illuminate their marginalization. Being outside ordinary pharmaceutical flows and being outside the American public occur through mutually reinforcing processes. Being ideologically defined as outside of society has material consequences for racial distributions of mortality. Is criminality the major, most common underlying justification for racial unequal mortality? And even setting aside the impact police have on the shortening of black lives, does a more publicly held assumption of black criminality, does white suspicion shorten black lives? Absolutely. I mean, so criminal, I wouldn't say that it's the most Perhaps, I mean, I think that the, um, these, these tropes are very intertwined. So the idea of the criminal, the idea of the refugee and the idea of the marginal in which the marginal is just kind of taken for granted. 
Um, I think that those are all very intertwined and they intersect with each other such that, um, you know, so people who are in poverty um, have conditions that differentially lead to criminality. And then also, of course, um, criminal records then increase marginality. And this idea of um, the way that this, um, that the kind of refugee within um, idea uh, is this idea that, okay, well, um, you know, these, that certain parts of the population only can um, get by at the kind of whim of those in power, whereas other people, you know, that it's just taken as a human right, that of course they would have, you know, kind of baseline protections. And so I think, you know, that the, the criminal trope is, is really important um, in reinforcing all of these, uh, but I don't know that it's the only one. I mean, I think that there are some ways that there are some countervailing. So another case that I talk about that's a little bit more forgotten is the Scott sisters case in which two sisters were serving double life sentences in Mississippi for a trivial crime. And they had their prison sentences um, suspended on an egregious condition, which was that one sister would donate her kidney to the other. Now, this kidney donation scheme didn't wind up happening. Um, there's a lot more that we could say about that. But I think that one of the things that's striking there is that the reason that Mississippi wanted to release these sisters was because the only people in the United States with a constitutional right to healthcare are prisoners. And so, you know, that the, the kind of the health and well-being of the populace is not a kind of a constitutional issue. And so I think that um, even though it's important to recognize, of course, that the healthcare in prisons is absolutely egregiously inadequate, um, there's this a very um, kind of um, strange biopolitics that is happening when um, it becomes cheaper for the state to release prisoners um, in order to uh, save money on providing health care um, that speaks to a, a really profound disinvestment um, in people who are racialized and criminalized um, in intertwined ways. I remember a couple of years ago, I was talking to somebody who had just gotten out of prison and uh, he said, oh, it was great. I got my teeth fixed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was just like, that's a really sad situation. We've been speaking with yeah, Ann Pollock. bleak. Yes, it is. And we've been speaking with Ann Pollock, author of Sickening Anti-Black Racism and Health Disparities in the United States. You can find out more about Ann at annpollock.com. One last question for you, Ann. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we, we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response or hate me for asking the question. You write, legal structures that privilege profit over people can be changed. Housing policies and structures that reinforce segregation can be redesigned. Police and prison systems can be made more accountable to public concern or abolished. Another world is possible. Yes, I believe that, and but is another world possible? under capitalism, or does capitalism make all other worlds impossible? You know, I think that for me, the I, I don't feel like I need to answer that question for myself. I really am inspired by my students. I mean, so this book is very much written, um, you know, kind of inspired from my experiences in the classroom, teaching classes like biomedicine and culture, science, technology, and race, these kinds of classes, especially at Georgia Tech, actually, before I came to England. And um, they're, 
this, I do think that this generation um, that is kind of coming up now um, really is insisting that I think maybe, okay, the phrase another world is possible is from when I came up, right? So in an activism, right? So this is from the global social forums and this kind of, kind of moment, right? So I may be aging myself. I think that what young people I hear saying today is that another world is like necessary, is unavoidable, is I'm demanding this now. And so for me, that shift um, is what gives me hope. Um, so that there is a much more widespread um, kind of recognition that the status quo is completely unsustainable, is completely impossible, is not working for way too many people. And, um, you know, and, th and that I think is what makes, what makes me hopeful because I think that, you know, so when I was protesting the war in Iraq or when I was, you know, involved in other activism in the 90s and the early 2000s, it felt like we were a very small um, minority a lot of the time, especially among young people. And I think that the real engagement of young people today um, is really something that, that gives me a lot of hope. So I do think that they will come up with ways um, to reform the legal structures, to reform housing, um, and what that looks like, um, I think I'm going to leave up to them, right? I think, um, you know, this is part of the, what is, is wonderful, I think, about being an academic is that I can give analytical tools to the students. Um, I can work with them on honing their ideas and recognizing that, that really a lot of this is not going to come from me. Um, it's going to come from people who are, who are really working together in the academy, in medicine, in broader political spheres. And, and so I will work with them, support them, and uh, collaborate with them. Um, even as I won't, I don't yet know what that future will look like. Who knew that a conversation about anti-black racism and health disparities in the United States would end with a message of hope? And by the way, I just wanted to point, uh, uh, say to you, Anne, and point out to all of our listening audience, in the conclusion to Anne's book, she tells you how to do your own racial inequality analysis. She goes through the whole process, and it's a great four-step template for how you can do the same. And I really appreciate you being on the show this week. Thank you so much for starting off our week. I truly appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. If Anne enlightened you about inequality in healthcare, please show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell or go to this is hell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell. We take no commercial money. We take no grant money. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Jess, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is, what are you starting to have second thoughts about? What are you starting to have second thoughts about? Walter B. says, who are these people who are starting to have second thoughts? I feel like that's been the story of my life. Dan K., having first thoughts. <laughs> Sam W., optimism. Uh, Bor <laughs> Borky B., that retirement home in Phoenix. <laughs> um... Krimsky K, I regret not running my first thought past quality quality control. 
<laughs> what are you starting to have second thoughts about? David David R. Uh, this this gray on black. This is hell face mask. Most folks are thinking I'm making a different statement than intended. <laughs> um, Chris C. Faith in humanity. Jack W. On first thought, best thought. <laughs> okay. Uh, Pete V. Uh, this paint color for the bedroom. <laughs> nice. And uh, last for today, Bradley R. My vacation to New Orleans next week. <laughs> we'll have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from hell is, what are you starting to have second thoughts about? What are you starting to have second thoughts about? You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us or you can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in rotten history. On September 1st, 1923, 98 years ago this Wednesday, at the Japanese port of Yokohama, an ocean liner called the Empress of Australia was departing for Vancouver when a massive earthquake collapsed the docks and threw people and automobiles into the water. The earthquake struck a wide area of Japan, including the nearby metropolis of Tokyo. Within minutes, it was followed by a tsunami, a series of ocean swells 40 feet high that inundated the eastern Japanese coast and swept thousands of people into the ocean. In both Tokyo and Yokohama, Public buildings were toppled, and residential neighborhoods built mostly of wood were soon beset by fast-spreading fires, and estimated 140,000 people were killed. Some historians now say the resulting public trauma and societal breakdown provided fertile ground for the growth of right-wing hysteria in Japan and helped provoke the hyper-nationalist imperial expansion that would contribute to World War II. No kidding. I never heard that before. The disastrous rise of the far right in Japan followed a natural disaster. Who knew? Seriously, Justin, you ever heard that before? I've never heard that before. No, this is the first time hearing. See? Yeah. What the hell? Rotten history. You can actually learn from it. Who knew? In Rotten History, September 2nd, 1885, 136 years ago this Thursday, near a coal mine owned by the Union Pacific Railroad in Rock Springs, Wyoming, some 150 white coal miners attacked Chinese immigrants who they felt were stealing their jobs. So usually when coal mines make it into rotten history, it's because horribly unsafe working conditions caused by greedy and humane mine owners have led to worker deaths. Apparently coal mines are also, well, like everywhere else, sites of racism too. Anti-Chinese sentiment had grown for years in the American West, culminating in the Chinese Exclusion Act passed by Congress just three years earlier in 1882, the only such piece of U.S. legislation to explicitly target a particular ethnic group. The attack at Rock Springs was not the first case of anti-Chinese violence in the West, but it was one of the worst. Most of the white coal miners were members of the Knights of Labor, an early union that was trying to organize a strike and sounding frighteningly like the KKK, even though it's a union. Yeesh, Knights of Labor. Really, gotta change that name. Union Pacific had brought in Chinese railroad workers willing to work in the mine for lower wages, so the white miners viewed them as scabs and targeted them instead of the railroad company owners. They showed up at the Chinese workers' residential enclave toting rifles and began robbing and killing people and setting houses on fire. Quite a trifecta of inhumanity there. Some Chinese workers were burned alive inside their homes, others were hanged or beheaded. 
Though only 28 deaths were confirmed, the real body count probably reached 40 or 50. President Grover Cleveland sent in federal troops and the Rock Springs massacre made national headlines, although some newspapers expressed sympathy with the white coal miners. Union Pacific would eventually fire some of them and force the rest back to work, while the National Knights of Labor organization essentially washed its hand of the whole matter. No word on any newspaper sympathizing with the Chinese laborers, but I'm guessing no. And finally, in rotten history, I love this one. On September 3rd, 1967, 54 years ago this Friday, the biggest logistical project in the history of Sweden reached its climax on so-called Dagen H, or Right Hand Day, when the entire nation switched from driving on the left-hand side of the street to driving on the right. And that is one day you probably do not want to be driving. Despite early opposition by more than 80% of the Swedish public, the government sought to bring Sweden into harmony with driving practices in neighboring countries, which would make driving a lot more convenient. It also hoped to curtail accidents because even though Swedes drove on the left side of the road, most had cars with steering wheels also on the left side, since the Swedish auto industry was so heavily geared toward export. Which makes you wonder why supposedly safety-conscious Sweden had not already made the change. This meant that on two-lane roads, Swedish drivers were closer to the curb than to the center line, thus leading to bad visibility and frequent head-on collisions when passing. A high-powered national media campaign had begun four years earlier to prepare Swedish drivers for the change, and the government had spent hundreds of millions of U.S. dollars on reconfigured urban buses, new bus stops, and some 360,000 new street signs, as well as new road markings and traffic lights, all of which were wrapped up and kept covered until the big day. Finally, at 1 o'clock in the morning on Dagen H., which was timed to occur on a Sunday, all non-essential vehicles were required to get off the nation's roads as work crews began uncovering the new signs and signals. A few hours later, at about or at exactly 4.50 a.m., any drivers still on the road had to come to a complete stop, carefully cross over the right side of the street, and remain in place for 10 minutes until national radio broadcast a countdown to the OK to s- signal to begin driving again. Despite all the careful preparations, the result was a nationwide traffic jam as expected, but though some people had feared that driver confusion would increase road carnage, road carnage, Hmm. Swedes actually drove so slowly and cautiously at first that the accident rate temporarily dropped. Within two years, however, just as many people were getting killed on Swedish roads as before. Still, with the driver's side of the car now on the center line, at least Swedish drivers can see the driver who's about to kill them. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell Jess, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow, we'll be speaking with writer James Gustav Speth on his book, They Knew, the U.S. Federal Government's 50-Year Role in Causing the Climate Crisis. And he knew. He was the Carter administration person. He was in charge of uh, the Science Committee. He was the lead scientific advisor to President Carter. And he knew about climate change back during the Carter administration. And nobody did a damn thing. What about Wednesday show? Do we have any idea? We're still working on Wednesday's show, but Jeff Dorchin, Moment of Truth. Sweet. Now, we asked you if the This Is Hell 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, This Is Art, 
should go ahead as planned, as scheduled. On Saturday, September 18th at Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from the studio. So Brian R. emailed us at chuckatthisishell.com writing, Yeah, I think you should cancel it. I did finish that butt demon skateboard I promised for the art opening and raffle, and I'm still planning to send it to you. Whether you hold the party or not, I want this contribution to be a gift. If you'd like to keep it, that's great. If you'd like to sell it on, if you'd like to sell it on as a fundraising tool, I'd be cool with that too. And those funds would be yours. And yes, if you would ultimately decide you'd just like to swat flies with it, well, it'd be a hell of a way for a fly to die. Peace, Brian. Brian, your butt demon skateboard will be a raffle prize at our party. Whenever we have our anniversary party, whether that's this year or next, and if anyone needs a reason to come to our party, whenever it is, it's a chance at winning a butt demon skateboard. I bet you're probably wondering what the hell is a butt demon skateboard. We also got an email from our own Ronaldo Magaldi, who does the research and writing for Rotten History. I just add all the stupid wisecracks. Ronaldo writes, you asked whether listeners believe the This Is Hell anniversary party should be rescheduled for next July. I say yes. You absolutely should reschedule. Having it in September is too risky. Just ain't worth it. Reality should always be faced. It's depressing to see various elements of society trying so hard in so many ways to avoid facing the reality of a deadly pandemic. I'd like to hope This Is Hell can remain separate from all that nonsense. I think the party should be canceled for whatever two cents that is worth. The point Ronaldo makes is one that I did not consider, and that is simply, what if nobody comes to the party out of a fear of getting coronavirus? How many people would actually show up if we do have the party. We had some artists lined up, but now their art may be here, but they won't. As for bands, I've already been told it may be really difficult to book any musicians, and there should definitely be, get this, no wind instruments performing. I was actually told that by a stage manager here in town. So send us your opinion on whether we should go ahead as planned, as scheduled, and have our party on September 18th or not. And we will share those thoughts, your thoughts, on air throughout the week. When, and uh, Wednesday, following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth, and following who, the an announcement of who is this week's winner of the question from hell, we will be announcing our final decision on if we will have a party this year or if we will have to wait until July 23rd, 2022. Thanks to Ann Pollock for being today's guest. Thanks to Jess Lipka for producing. Also, thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's Hangover Cure is Chia Seeds. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Captooth Radio Show host, podcast host, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Thank you so much for listening. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.